Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday the 21st of the 10th. Michael, how have you been? Oh, I'm just delirious, Gary. I can't wait for another six weeks of sitting at home worrying about the novel that I'm not writing. It's this wonderful opportunity to be creative that the government is yet, is yet again going to give us. I'm a happy, happy bunny. Of course. You know, what else could you want but your own company, Michael? Let's not get into that there are things that require other people's company that we won't get into on a family com on a family podcast i'm sure someone will deliver cocaine to you if you ask <laughs> you know actually when i when i did some work with with the homeless one of the things you quickly realize if you don't know it be beforehand is a lot of people who are homeless who use like heroin and things like that do it to alleviate boredom more than anything else because if you've got nothing to do all day, every day, you'd be surprised how quickly boredom just crushes you down. I no doubt. I mean, I'd say that if you were to look at what was written by clever people in French for the last 300 years, most of it has been about our ability or inability to deal with boredom, ennui, noia, all that stuff. So anyway, we are going to, we're going into lockdown. We are going to see a number of things happen quite rapidly, most of which will be quite bad. Before we go into that, though, uh, and I think we'll try and talk as little as possible about lockdown over the next kind of series of episodes beyond what is necessary, because everyone will be talking about it, and I'm not sure what new thing we can add to it. I can see days and weeks ahead where this podcast will principally be you reading out from sec your favourite sections of Moby Dick and me reading long sections of my favourite poems by T.S. Eliot just to avoid talking about lockdown. What we'll do is we'll link Moby Dick to the disappearance of fungi and explain particularly the parts of Moby Dick that talk about the whaling industry Absolutely. which is in fact the majority of the book. I will. <laughs> I have read uh, at least one analysis of it, which described, which is that it was principally a text, uh, which was a critique of the nature and the format of the whaling industry in northeastern in the northeast in the nineteenth century. Which I, I kind of think missed the point a little bit about it, but there you go. No, it's actually my it's my favourite thing about Moby Dick that people read it expecting this epic revenge tale, mm -hmm. and then a lot of it is just the uses of whale oil. In great detail. There's a lot There's a lot of whale oil stuff. It's a little bit like a Tom Clancy novel. You get all the detail of all the guns and all that new fancy military technology that he seems to fetishise. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the man who wrote Moby Dick. Oh my God. Michael. I, the age, Gary. I saw, as I mentioned to you earlier, we discovered studies are now showing from chess players that Brain peaks at 35. Well, I'll, I'm, I'll, I'm, give you, I'll give you a hint, Michael, out of my sense of kindness. Yeah. Uh, his first name is Herman. Melville. There you go. Mr. Melville. Took a little oh, bit of help, but we got there. Also wrote Bi Billy Budd there, so I'm just throwing that in to show that I, I can remember some things. Sorry, before we get to that, there is one thing I wanted to mention, and this is an American thing. It has come out that uh, Mitch McConnell has said that the vote to confirm Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. That vote will be held next Monday. We'll get to see if Romney is on board or if this is a long-term plan to just fuck Trump at the last minute. <laughs> um, 
I hope it's I hope it's not because if he were to vote against her, it would be such a misguided act because it would just completely devalue Romney as a as a brand. I mean, he has succeeded in establishing in the in the views of centrists and moderate leftists because of his anti-Trumpism. That sense that a lot of us already had that he was a a man of character and integrity and dignity and a nice guy and all of that and. His job as a senator is to advise and consent. There is absolutely no doubt, according to every metric that you look at, whatever you like, about her personal life or her beliefs, that she is a supremely qualified individual when it comes to the decision of whether or not she should be on the Supreme Court. The Republicans have 53 Senate seats, which means they can lose three of those and still be confirmed, because although it'll be a 50-50 vote, on a 50-50 vote or on a, an equal split in the Senate, the vice president will come in and will put a deciding vote in. Yeah. I think that would be the first time a vice president has ever had to vote on a Supreme Court nomination or confirmation vote, but I'm not entirely sure. One Republican senator has said that she will vote uh, against Barrett. That's Susan Collins in Maine's. Yeah. One from Alaska has said that she doesn't think that this is the time for a nominee to be put in the Supreme Court, but hasn't said that she would uh, vote against Barrett, which means that were Romney to vote against it, Barrett would still go true, but it would require Pence to come in and could be embarrassing for Trump. But it's not a small thing. Sorry, hold on. It could be embarrassing for Trump. Now, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I need you to to amplify how something could embarrass Trump, let alone winning a vote in the Senate ultimately and putting a third justice on the Supreme Court. I think that Donald Trump's uh, tolerance tolerance of embarrassment is considerably higher than that. Perhaps so. I'm trying to imagine what would embarrass Donald. Anyway, it looks like, uh, and yes, you're probably right, would more embarrass Romney than anyone else, but it could happen. So it looks like that will go through, in which case the Supreme Court will have... Barring the sudden death of one of the Republican justices, we'll have a Republican majority for the next couple of decades. Well, that is, unless the Democrats decide to pack the court. I mean, there have been more than one or two pieces in things like the New Yorker and the New York Times from members of the uh, progressive wing of the Labour of the Labour Party, the Democratic Party, people like Robert Reich and others, uh, saying that. Uh, they should just get in there and back the court. In fact, there have been a number of voices saying they should just get rid of the Constitution altogether and either get rid of the Constitution, just not have one, or rewrite the thing completely. Now, I think the practical likelihood of that happening is somewhere between zero and minus one. I mean, that's true. And actually, it's a sign of how unserious most of the American media is that when Biden was asked, would you pack the court? Yeah. And the court is a massive thing. Most of the social progress America has seen over the last 40 or so years, maybe longer, has come from the Supreme Court because Congress is so deadlocked. And when he was asked, would he pack the court, which would fundamentally change the makeup of the country and could be damaging to the court's reputation, he said that you'll know my position on that after the election. And they were like, okay, cool, he's answered the question. Usually how it works in an election is you get to vote on for the guy that you think is going to do X, Y, or Z, rather than do a lucky bag and say, oh, well, you know, I think he seems like a nice guy. Let's wait and see what he'll do. But yes, they just let him off completely on that. One thing I have noticed, actually, from the debate on Amy Coney Barrett and just watching more left-leaning media and then left kind of wing sort of social bubbles is their misunderstanding 
of originalism as a legal doctrine, which is actually quite spectacular because originalism as a a legal doctrine is actually exceptionally simple and accepted in most of the world, although judges do tend to go against it, but quietly. Well, yeah, I mean, it's always... It's always been a it's a, it's a principle. It's what they call the principle of legality or something that you have to be able to know as a citizen if you're going to if you're breaking the law or not. So the law has to be that to be certain clarity about that. So judges have tended to go on the basis that the law is what is written down, rather than to peer into the law and interpret it as you might do. Uh, a sonnet from Shakespeare and say, well, what, he's actually, what they actually mean is this. And that's just a metaphor. And well, yeah, he meant that, but I don't know if he'd still mean that. And later, you know, no, the thing says what it says. And originalists go back to the original text. Like uh, Scalia, for example, one of the things Scalia used to do was uh, he had collections of dictionaries, which were from the time that the the constitution was written so that you could understand what particular words which may have evolved or changed in their meaning since the 1790s uh, what those words meant to the people framing the document so you try and go back to what the original meaning of those words was and that's what it is and as Scalia says you don't have to stay with that there are ways you could change the the document there are ways you can I mean the obvious examples are for example the uh, the way you count the the citizens uh, for apportionment it used to be that in two third two three fifths uh, a person held in chattel slavery was considered to be three fifths of a person for the purposes of deciding how many seats you had in Congress and things like that they abolished slavery they they banned the the production consumption of alcohol and then they unbanders. I mean, you can change the constitution. You can. I mean, originalism is not really, I mean, it's a conservative legal doctrine in that it is about law and it is about looking at law as it was written rather than using it for particular political ends. It's not conservative as in left or right wing. Um, it basically no, it, just says the meaning of law is what is written in the law. It's conservative with a small c because as it's historically been understood, that's the purpose of having a constitution. The purpose is to slow a process down. So people, either it, it means that you don't, you can't subject people in any particular moment to the tyranny of the majority. You can't take, strip away the basic rights of a minority simply because you can get the votes in parliament to do it. So you protect the, 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 the minorities, but also you slow down the process of people making large jump changes in, 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 in the structure of the state or the, or, or the fabric of the society on the basis of what could turn out to be a, a passing fad or a, a particular moral panic or a particular situation. Like, for example, the one we're living through at the moment. Yeah, I mean... If you're in, assuming the listener is interested, but they can't stop me, so well, I suppose they could stop the podcast. Oh no, Michael. Well, they could stop listening. The main opponent to that doctrine in America would be what's called the uh, living constitution, sometimes called living constitutionalism. Yes. And that would be the idea that the documents, the constitution, should be, um, evolves and adapts over time. And that you should take what it has and then adapt that to changing circumstances. 
Now, the problem I have with that is the Constitution has written inside it ways of changing the law. Now, people who are in the um, the Living Constitution camp will say, well, you know, sometimes if we were to apply the law as it was written when it originally was written, then there would be an injustice. And from a uh, originalist perspective, that's yeah, that that could be perfectly true. But that's an issue that should be fixed by the by the uh, Parliament or by amending the Constitution. It's not the job of the courts to do that. It's not the job of the courts to legislate. It's, yeah, it's not the job of the court, particularly in relation to the American Supreme Court, where you have a very small number of people with lifetime appointments who, if they were to decide that and come at that from that stance, it would be very easy for them to have a, a profound impact that was never intended by the law. And that is the primary uh, objection to the living constitution idea. What is to stop a judge who believes in that from engaging in what's called judicial activism, where you decide what you want the law to be rather than what the law is, because you think, maybe correctly, that what the law is in your mind is more just, and then you twist it until you can get that result. And I think that's actually, it's it's been a real problem in America because a lot of people don't seem to understand the originalists' complaints against certain judgments that even the originists will say, yes, they did make things better, but they did so totally contrary to the law. Listen, it's also, it's also perfectly possible that it's irrespective of whether or not the court is to the left or right, that if you have judges acting in bad faith, that they will, who are blinded by their the particular ideological or philosophical or religious blinders that they had of the time that they'll produce bad law. I mean, the most, but there's, there's nothing, if, if a bunch of judges decide they're going to do that, it, living constitution and originalism, whatever, is not going to save you. The difference is the originalism, if you get people who are, genuinely committed to it and are acting reasonable faith is they are going to be predictable that you can you know what there is because you can look at the text and have a pretty pretty sound idea of what the, which way they're going to go i would say that the americans designed the court specifically designed it to be the weakest of the branches of their government um hamilton said that the courts were designed to be the weakest and they would be the weakest because i think the phrase was They've no influence over either the sword or the purse, and they do not have force or will. They merely have judgment. Yeah. I think that what some people would say about the Supreme Court in the United States, and that might be true in other places as well over time, is that it has actually assumed a greater degree of, a greater level of power and influence than it really should have. And that's why everybody now, well, not everybody, but a lot of people in the United States know the names of the people in the Supreme Court. That's probably indicative of a bad thing rather than a good thing. It shouldn't be as important as it is. I would say when, when Hamilton said that, he said it in the scope of the Federalist Papers. Yeah. Uh, which, if you haven't read and you're interested in political science, absolutely should read. It's a, a great way to see the value of anonymous debate. And also what things, what will be said about people in an anonymous debate. It's also remarkable when you read the Federalist Papers and the debates around that time that what was a relatively small number of people, with a lot of them with a reasonable but not dramatic level of education, the quality of their debate, the quality of the the cut and the thrust and the argumentation is it's 
embarrassing when we look at our legislators today god love them to see in it it really is incredible it was that moment that virginian enlightenment that they were gifted with a group of people that really were quite extraordinary so it, it was produced under a, a pseudonym a publius i believe and it was hamilton madison and there was a third um i think he, he was he was governor of new york I, I actually I sadly cannot remember his name. Unfortunately, I am not perfect at these things, but it's absolutely worth reading. It was published effectively in order to convince people to ratify the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's 80 or so essays, I think, somewhere in that region, published over the course of about a year. And uh, it's, it's well worth reading. But in that essay, Hamilton was writing uh, particularly about the f- federal judiciary. Uh, to a group called the Anti-Federalist. And he was trying to convince them, because they were really concerned about the idea of federal judges. Because they said, well, they're not elected, they, uh, they're they in position for life, and the people cannot remove them. Now, uh, we should re- remember, point out here, that because it's a strange thing for us, that many judges in the United States are elected. Yes, they are, yeah. Which has led to some interesting sentencing regimes in certain parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so he, he was talking specifically in that saying the courts would have no will. So there is actually a really interesting legal argument about whether or not the Supreme Court should now have the powers vested in it, or rather it in the same way the presidency became the imperial or executive presidency, they effectively just took them by deciding in judgment that they had those powers already. There was a decision fairly early on, I think in the early early 1800s, about sort of, as, which touched on the scope or the ability or the, or the right, shall we say, of the court to override decisions made by by uh, the government in Congress, whether or not it was they had that power, and they and they said, well, yes, we do this. This is unconstitutional, and they struck down the law because it hadn't necessarily been clear up to that if that was the case. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. Anyway, so I think I think that's 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 a slightly longer digression into American legal theories than originally planned. But still. Still. So the lockdown. Yeah, God, the lockdown. So this is a whole thing. I, um let's start with the the job losses we expect to see. Yeah. So Leo said on Monday it could cost hundred and fifty thousand jobs. I've seen other business people um, say 200,000. Yeah. The one thing that is certain is that this is going to devastate a lot of the commercial entities in Ireland. Now, it is important to know here that the indigenous economy is just being fucked. Yes. But the export sector is actually doing okay and in some cases doing really well. But a lot of our export sector is pharmaceutical, so not really surprising there. But when you look at particularly the SMEs, they are not doing well. I A letter went out today from ISME, Michael, which yeah. is the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Board. Yes. And uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to read people part of it, because it is it is not a happy letter, Michael. No, they are not a happy... They are not happy campers. No, so they have said that... Um, the, the the letter has a petition at the end of it that they want their members to uh, sign on to. So ISMI members wouldn't tend to be like IBEC members. Uh, IBEC, for those who don't know, is 
effectively the larger of the business organizations. You're like of Google, Apple, they would be IBEC members. Uh, ISME is small, medium enterprises, mostly indigenous. I like ISME more on a personal level, Michael, but you know, we don't let that distort our judgment. No, some lovely chaps in IBEC too. There are, there are some good people there. And Chapesses. Chapesses. Is that whatever? Let's assume that's correct. So the, the petition that they have put out is basically asking business people to contact uh, their local TD. And it says this. We see that test and trace has completely failed. Faster tests, such as antigen tests, have not been rolled out, despite evidence that it's working cheaply and effectively in other countries. We appear to have completely given up on contact tracing. And as a side, Michael, I did see uh, a GP earlier today saying that the uh, contact tracing has effectively totally collapsed. And from some of the news reports we're seeing, that would appear to be roughly the case. Well, we saw we saw a story here that the HSE had announced that the, the backlog in 2,500 tests had reached such a point where they were asking GPs to refer, to go back to those the people who have been tested and for those people to, to contact their close contacts themselves. So it says, uh, again, people are behaving recklessly, some are becoming super spreaders, and yet there are no consequences for them. The HSE data does not show the SME sector is a large-scale outbreak location. Yet we're being closed down as we enter a critical time of year and without any public plan about what will happen when this lockdown ends in December. Yeah. And that that does seem to be the case. Where Lockdowns give you time to do other things, but no one has yet explained what we're actually going to use this time for. And we saw today that uh, one of the medical personnel who has been advocating for this lockdown is now saying anticipating if not actually advocating for a lockdown in february that will be required just on the point of the the, st- the the state of the economy just in case the listeners come across some statements from the politicians uh, in an analysis that was done of the damage being uh, inflicted on OE- economies in the oecd that's the organization for economic development so these are the developed economies in the world Ireland comes, I think, fourth or fifth best, as in suffering the least amount of damage. But the principal reason for that is the very strong performance of the foreign, particularly the pharmaceutical industry in Ireland. Now, it's not that the pharmaceutical industry, it's, it's great that they are here, but if we're talking about sort of the general contribution to, to the local economy, the small to medium businesses are far more important. Now, it's been a an observation or criticism for a very long time that the small local businesses tend to be on the hind tit when it comes to getting support or care from our government, be that as it may. The point that if you strip out the farm a bit from our, uh, and other parts from the, the figures and look at it from the domestic economy point of view, the they are getting beaten with a wet sock, or shall we say a sock full of wet sand at the moment. We are now going here. We are on the. We're heading into six weeks, so we're going to. This is going to bring us into. We're going to begin to. The first week, anyway, certainly of December, we're heading into the period which is absolutely crucial for most retail businesses, not just retail businesses, but for lots of small businesses. The period in November, December, up to Christmas is where they will do, in, in the space of two months, they may do four or five months of their business. So it is also important to point out here that this lockdown will differ from the last lockdown 
in that a lot of these businesses were able to get things like loan deferments and mortgage deferments for a period, uh, some of them for about six months. Those are gone now for the most part. Yeah. And banks are unlikely to put them out again in those kind of numbers. So that's going to be a big problem. And in fact, in the ISME letter, uh, before they get to the petition, they explain some of the things they've been trying to get the government to do. And they mentioned they've been trying to get reform of the examinership regime for small businesses. And then they note that it looks like we're going to need that reform sooner rather than later. And you go down two paragraphs and this is what they say. Your legal duties as a business director are clear, and if liquidity of your business at this stage, sorry, if liquidation of your business at this stage makes more sense from the point of view of your shareholders and your creditors, then you must consider this option. Wow. And uh, then they advise you how you would do that. Um, So the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises is now writing to its members nationally, just going... Maybe think about closing down. Yeah. just We're just saying, you know, that might be your best option at this point. I mean, it's not it's not a great sign when one of the principal things that they're involved in lobbying the government for is a cheaper way to liquidate your company. Yeah, so this, this is going to be a problem. And just on the point you mentioned, people, Michael, about people saying that... Um, I've seen people, particularly people in media, and a couple of people on the zero COVID kick, saying that there is no... There is no additional harm to the economy from going for lockdown because over the long term, consumers will go less into shops because of COVID. And over the long term, it'll basically, uh, it will be a better option to go for zero COVID. To which I say that, I think you can disprove that with a very small little mental exercise, Michael. Okay. If you take a shop and let's say you cut its revenue in half, but you allow it to remain open. It does have some additional running costs that it wouldn't if it was closed, like staffing costs, assuming you know, that the closed shop fires everyone, mm-hmm. uh, heating, stock, costs depending on what they're doing. If you totally shut it down, it has 0% of its revenue. But not all of its costs disappear. No. And costs will have to exceed revenue because there is no revenue. In 100% of cases, a closed business that cannot generate revenue, revenue cannot exceed costs, which means they are losing money consistently. If the business is open, some businesses won't be able to operate at that scale because their profit margins are thin or they just work on a scale that just isn't workable at that level. But some of them will be able to do it to survive. There is obviously a difference between this. And this idea that we can get to zero covid I think is facile. But it started to actually really irritate me because if you don't think that that's an option, there are hard choices that need to be made. And you might have to go, okay, we need to prioritise this or we need to prioritise this. And that is an adult discussion about the trade-offs that you are willing to have for a certain objective. But these people are just going, no, no, this is the best of all world. This is more positive than the second coming of Christ. This is everything there is no flaw with this and i just don't think that's likely because i spent a lot of time involved in politics and it is very rare you find something that is just a perfect solution everything aligns to make this objectively 
the best outcome for everything. Well, it seems to me that a, 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 a fairly important flaw in zero COVID is that zero COVID is impossible. And one thing that is absolutely, and right from the beginning, I remember we had a conversation with uh, Steve Davis from the uh, Institute for Economic Affairs on this. Steve is an economic historian, and one of the things he's, he's been interested in history have been pandemics. I talked to him about it. We had a, a chat with uh, Ive Milne, Ida Milne, who, who wrote a very fine book on the, the Spanish flu pandemic here. And one of the things that is, is clear is that the, the once you once you have it in your in in the country and you don't succeed very early on in clamping down on it by blocking your borders by completely isolating the contagion if you if you can do that very early on like for example vietnam appears to have done if you don't do that then you you have it in the, you have it in the, in the population, and then when the second wave comes, and I, Steve was absolutely certain, I was absolutely certain. There were others who disagreed. Said no, there will. Everything historically we, that we know tells us there will be a second wave. The problem with the second wave is the second wave tends to be far more diffuse than the first wave. And if you remember, Gary, the first wave, there were a lot of counties that were almost untouched by the by by the virus. Very low numbers, Wexford, Carlow, Waterford, Leitrim, very, very low numbers in comparison. There are maybe half a dozen counties that had very high numbers and the rest of it was in between, but some counties, very low numbers. That's not the case now. We're seeing outbreaks happening, popping up. The border counties have had problems. You've had problems in Donegal, you've obviously, you have problems in, in, in Meath. In, in Wexford, which had been very low, we had a, we had a, a very significant outbreak uh, in, in Gori, and this is happening around the country. You're getting outbreaks, and when you have that kind of diffuse level throughout the population, it the notion of suppressing COVID, particularly going back to this discussion, which we, we I think we had before, Gary, was about one of the problems is when it is so asymptomatic. I mean, as as we said in the last show, the HSE a clinical advice, clinical lead, I think. I, I actually I cannot remember his exact position. He was clinical director, or effectively ahead of that for the HSE, gave an 80% figure, which is of asymptomatic and mild. The CDC says asymptomatic people are 75% as infectious. If we have 50,000 cases confirmed in Ireland, Michael, yeah, and we were to assume that those are all... Now, this isn't correct. This is just a mental exercise. So I'm, I'm not trying to get an exact figure here. But if we were to assume they were all people who had had to go to hospital or required medical intervention in some way that would represent 20 percent of the total number of people with covid in this country meaning there would be 250,000 people in the country who actively have covid 19 or had covid 19 right that would be untraceable for the most part because they have no symptoms why would they be tested but they can pass it to others and with that level of asymptomatic um, transmission you would see strings of people before someone became asymptomatic or became symptomatic and it would be nearly impossible to actually figure out where it had come from absolutely and that's the nightmare of the situation the figure we met the figure i mentioned in the last podcast was the figure which was from the united kingdom which said they found that as you were looking at 86 percent asymptomatic on the basis that you had around 75 percent were just asymptomatic they had no symptoms and 
10 to 11 percent had symptoms, but the symptoms were not symptoms that you would take classically associated with being COVID. But if we take this, the lower figure, 75 percent, now that has to mean that if you have 75 percent of the people who are infected who are asymptomatic, of they're going to inf they're going to infect people who will in turn be asymptomatic, and like you say, you you can generate chains. It is not fanciful to speculate that you could actually have a situation where you've got a chain asymptomatic to asymptomatic to asymptomatic, and allowing for a period of 14, 14 days incubation, right, which is the maximum. But again, we'll 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 shorten that out. We'll say it's ten days. You could go a period where ten days where the person is where is infectious. You could be looking at a situation where, after forty days of no apparent infection, you get somebody cropping up with symptoms with three three asymptomatics behind the person. Now, and that you could have declared yourself COVID free. At that, oh look, we've had no cases, and then boom, all the cases start coming up again. So anyway. Point being, zero COVID seems to me not to be a runner, just not. Now, I mean, the problem is when you bring that up, people assume immediately that you're going for some sort of herd, immu uh, herd immunity strategy. The problem, I think, there is that we don't know exactly what kind of immunity COVID-19 gives, if it gives any immunity, how long it lasts, if it will cover you from future COVID-19 strains, or if you will see something like the flu, where you need to constantly be updating, and the vaccines are what fifty percent effective less. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, there's there was a report uh, published today which said that they found that twenty percent of people who had had it uh, were had no immunity. Now, that's a, that's just one study. Maybe it's wrong, maybe it's right. But we know that there are questions regarding the level of immunity that people have. We know there are questions regarding the duration of their immunity. Now, it may be that they don't have full immunity, but rather they do have sufficient immunity to mean that if they become infected again, that they don't become infected uh, in a such a way that they develop a serious illness, and that would obviously be a good thing. No, I mean, my, my, my concern with some of the, the uh, herd immunity kind of, people on that area is that it does seem to be going in sort of a zero COVID direction where there is a sort of, well, this will definitely work and it will be perfect. And I don't think we, we don't have the data to be able to go, yeah, that'll absolutely work. And I think it's because the debate has become so polarized, uh, polarized that you just can't have a discussion about it. And there is no discussion of it effectively happening at a policy level that I can see. No, and it, it's also the case that there, we, there doesn't seem to be any real discussion. It's just a group of people shouting at each other regarding, say, take her, the herd immunity thing. What? No, the herd immunity accepts that there are going to be, you're going to have fatalities. Now, what the herd immunity people say is that the, the theme of the herd immunity is that you get through a higher level of fatality, but then you by achieving it, you, you, you get to the end of the process more quickly. Whereas if you just institute a series of lockdowns, what you do is you space it out. You end up getting the same level of fatalities, in at, at, but you've inflicted this a massive amount of economic, social and psychological damage on your population. And you haven't actually gained anything. It's not clear to me that they have made the case that there won't actually be quite significant extra numbers of fatalities 
by pursuing some kind of herd. But again, to be fair, even the word herd immunity, there are there are there are far there is a lot more nuance within that. I mean, there are different approaches. Mm. I don't think that sense there are sensible people who are talking about this are saying that we should just all run around and desperately send all get all the young healthy people to run around and get themselves infected. You know the way. Uh, you hear of cases where when me, there's an outbreak of measles or chickenpox or something in a populate in a town sometimes parents will organize parties so that all the children become infected at the same time and it just it's a it's a more efficient way of doing it and you mean and you make sure that your kid gets it rather than getting it later on in life whatever which may be more problematic uh, i don't think that that's what they're advocating that we just all get but that rather you take care of those people who are particularly vulnerable you give people reason advice but you ultimately say to people you have to be relied upon to behave in a sensible way you have to be responsible and if everybody takes personal responsibility behaves in a reasonable and sensible way we can manage the movement through of this through the population in such a way where we will have very low levels of fatalities and we will get to the end of it and we will end up actually both saving lives and saving the economy. You see, I, I think I can follow that to a certain point and it's the point where they say and we can use this to manage fatalities. That is the part I don't think we actually have the research to know because if there is only a limited immunity or if there is only uh, if there's no immunity really then that won't happen. You'll get everything up to that point, but you won't be able to control the fatalities. But then again, what I—I I mean, what is entirely possible is that because it's it's getting really complicated to tell what countries are doing well, what countries aren't. I mean, mm. a week ago, Germany was high flying, better than anyone else. You know, a, a case study in how it should be done. Their numbers have started to spike, and there seems to be nearly. And I, I would need to go and see if, if there's any data on this. I've seen a couple of graphs, but I haven't seen enough to know if it's true. It may be that what we would expect to see is a convergence in roughly the fatality rate uh, across countries. Yeah, but th isn't that the problem, I suppose, for people like, uh, looking on? We're looking at the... Uh, you, look, you, say, you look at Germany, and the case rate certainly is going up up and up case rate in sweden is going up case rate in france has gone rocketing it is we have to point out our our, our observe that if we take we, we look at france the case rates in france now are much much higher than they were at the peak you're going from peaks of around six and seven thousand to daily cases here at the moment of 32,000, 33,000 daily cases. Well, actually, that's that's roughly what you're seeing in the European countries. So let's take Germany, because we're saying Germany at the start of this month. So let's take the 13th of September, 948 new cases. 17th of October, 7,830 new cases a day. But when you look at deaths... That's the thing. So we go back to April. The highest point, the highest day of deaths Germany ever had was the 16th of April. 315 deaths. Now, the 16th of April, that kind of region uh, of testing, they were looking at about three to 5,000 new cases a, a day. So less than they are doing now. But the deaths now 
33 on the uh, 17th of October, mm-hmm. 10 on the 18th. We're looking at debt rates that are 10%, sometimes less, of the debt rates then, with cases spiking ever upwards. And Michael and I have been talking to a couple of people trying to get a handle on why that is. And basically, I think it's because testing has expanded massively. Uh, so we're catching more people who have COVID. We now know that there is a massive amount of asymptomatic infection. I think that we're looking at a younger demographic. And you've got to remember with COVID, the debt rate, if you are under 19, is I think 0.003%, which is tiny. But then when you get up, it's very age dependent. So it wouldn't surprise me if when you look at the overall mortality of COVID-19, it actually is no more dangerous than the flu. But that kind of hides the age-dependent nature of it. Because if you look at the high end, I think it is it could be substantially more deadly than the flu. It's just when that risk is is put across the entire population but i don't know it's actually very hard to get but we don't the, uh... we don't we don't know that because okay, if you look at the general stats for the fatality levels of the flu we know that flu is far more fatal for people over over 65 and certainly people over 80 are far more likely to die from influenza than younger people are so even if there is a disproportionate effect within covid there's a there's also a disproportionate effect in with the with, with the influenza now just you're looking at the german figures the the, the one i was looking at because uh, they just seem to be so, so dramatic are the french figures because at the moment in ireland you're looking at two graphs for the old the old outbreak and the new outbreak which are fairly similar the graph for france is is, is radically different you have very like you have the highest peak which is 7578 uh, most of them are in around four 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 and a half five thousand cases five five thousand uh five thousand four hundred is the highest then you're looking at new cases report daily cases twenty six thousand thirty two thousand uh then we go up to 30,047 on the 19th. Now, then if we go back and we look at daily deaths, daily deaths in France, like 1,400, 1,416, 1,300, 1,354. When we're looking at daily case rates of like 4,000, I mean, it was an incredibly high death rate. We're now looking at daily cases which are four times five times six times higher but like the the daily death on the october the 18th 85 so you're looking at daily death rates uh now which are literally like 10 percent five percent well no seven percent of what we had been seeing even though the cases are 700% higher. It's just weird. Now, yes, testing has significantly changed. The demographics of who's being infected has significantly changed. I think also there was a study, for example, today from from New York, which showed that uh, outcomes, even for elderly people going into hospital with COVID, are much better now than they were six months ago. That doctors have much better handle on dealing with it there are viral there are cocktails of viral drugs their understanding of who needs to be get uh, oxygen support as opposed to say asp- put on a respirator to be intubated 
their, that understanding is better, so outcomes are much better. But it just, it seems that normally speaking, when you're looking at a disease, the thing that you look at, the, that you pay the most attention to usually would be how sick people get or how many, how many people die. Now, I suppose, I know the concern here is that the numbers of the infection will will just run out of control. You'd have to say that looking at the way the numbers have been, say, in France since, say, September the 10th, right? September the 18th, we have, September the 18th, we have 153 deaths. You go forward to October the 6th, you have 66. You go forward October the 14th, 104. You go forward to October the 17th, we have 89. I mean, these, that does not look like, to my obviously uneducated eye, exponential growth. It looks like a fairly com similar kind of a number. Um, and I just, I have to wonder, are we look, are we becoming more obsessed with the cases in a way that isn't really the, the, the whole story? I, I think the, the difference between France and ourselves is that the Irish health system, while not like totally shambolic, although it depends on what part of it you're in, would struggle to contain things that the French health service wouldn't even consider inconvenient. I mean, so we know from the letter that Neffet sent to the government, which is now public, I'll include a link to it in the bottom of this podcast, that when they wrote it, and this was the 15th, so five days ago, they were saying that um, the growth rate is 5 to 6%, which means that it will double every 12 to 16 days. Mm-hmm. But they also point out that there are now 234 confirmed cases in hospital. Now, if you look at... Now, not all of those will be seriously ill people, I would say. I mean, you would have moderate cases there who might need oxygen, but don't need ventilators or, or things of that nature. When you look at how many ICU beds we have, we have, um, I think, about 280 yeah, I mean, in comparison to the, for the Germany, we have a fraction of what Germany has. Germany's so during during the the early the first lockdown, we brought that up to about three hundred and fifty four, and then we let it fall down. Now I'm not sure why we did that. It might have been that they were including the private hospitals, and now they've gone back to themselves. And I don't think a lot of that capacity was used. Just here, just to throw this number, I'm just there's a report from the FT. At the beginning of the pandemic, Germany had 28,000 intensive care beds. Now, there's a lot of people in Germany, but there's not that, I mean, 28,000 intensive care beds. Well, what, we have a population of, what, 5 million? Yeah. So Germany has a population of about 80. 90, is it? I thought it was closer to, like, let's say 85. Let's split the difference, Michael. Because we're reasonable men. That's, what, 17 times the population of Ireland? They have 25,000? They have 38.7 ICU beds per 100,000 inhabitants. 
Uh, Ireland has six and a half. Right, so they have 17 times our population, but nearly 90 times the ICU beds we have. So that might explain why they've been able to handle this a little bit better. And I would say their concern actually there is that we know the treatment uh, for COVID-19 has gotten better. The fatality rates are falling. I would say their concern is if we see what happens in Italy when the hospitals are overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. that's when you start to see massive spikes in death. And I would say their actual concern is not so much the case numbers. It's the amount of people ending up in hospitals. Because if we can only fit 280 people into ICU beds, and okay, they're going to have additional funding for the winter, so that might bring it up to 300 and something, but it starts doubling every week and a half. That's not a good situation. So I would say that is their concern, that they're not actually, the deaths are remaining low, but our base of ICU beds is so low that we cannot cope with even a fractional increase. Well, then, can I, can I, am I excessively naive in asking the question that in the last number of months, and in the awareness that a second wave was expected, and in the awareness that we had six and a half ICU beds, which was a critical point regarding the reason we had to flatten the curve in the first place, why do we still have so few ICU beds? We see, I think that is the question about this lockdown. When you look at what the WHO says, some people have been saying they've been saying lockdowns don't work. That's not really what they said. They said that lockdowns are not the be-all and end-all, that they have a purpose when things get out of hand yes. in order to drive down the rate and allow you to implement further solutions. So we had the initial lockdown, but we don't seem to have built up a lot of our capabilities, or if we did build them up, we then seem to have let them go to rot, even though everyone was expecting that as we got closer to winter, we would see a second wave. So we kind of pissed away the first lockdown, and now we're doing it again. So yeah, okay, it'll drive down the rate just because no one can do anything. Although schools, if some of the data there suggests that schools may be actually far more dangerous than we thought. Other data says they aren't, so we'll see what's true, I suppose, if they're the only thing open. Yeah, but the thing about the schools, Gary, there's an, there's an example. It, I, I, I'm very cherry about the numbers that we're seeing about schools because if you look at the HSE guidelines regarding what is a contact person, uh, your close contact in, in a circumstance, it seems that it's almost like the, the guidelines are designed, how would I say, to move the eye away from schools, to say that uh, we are going, if, if they're across, we're going to locate them outside of schools. We are not going to see clusters in schools. I have also looked at the those guidelines and I've talked to a couple of people in schools and I would say it looks like the, the guidelines were explicitly written in order that school outbreaks would not be classed as school outbreaks. Yes, I think so. And I think that there are a couple of reasons for that. The government does not want schools closing, partially because of education, but also because schools are the largest daycare system in existence in this country. There's no, absolutely no doubt about that. And I, Listen, I don't think it's necessarily a, that it's a bad choice to keep schools open. I think this is one of the examples where you may look at this, the the, the situation is like, okay, schools represent a risk. We have to try and manage that risk as best we can. 
there are other kinds of places where the risk is maybe lower, but where we can, we're going to shut those down because they don't represent, because shutting them down is a, a not a significant economic or social cost. We can do that. That closing the schools down would just, would be enormously difficult for the whole, for the whole of the economy, for all sorts of social economic reasons, so that you have to try and keep them open. But they're doing so by pretending. Now, and my objection is not so much that they're keeping the schools open, but rather that they're going to, I don't, it seems that at least potentially, you're, by doing it the way they're doing it, they're going to put people at risk of contagion that should not, that would not necessarily otherwise have been put at risk. There are a number of, of issues with this as it is, and the schools could be one. And beyond that, I mean, Nefit, because of the limited data we have available to us, I remember seeing one of the members of Nefit on Twitter talking about why they had decided, uh, I think we talked about it in the podcast, why they had decided about which pubs had to serve food and which had to be closed and all of yeah, that. Yeah. And they made the point that they didn't have access to the data because it would be too costly to actually determine how dangerous these locations were. Yeah. So rather than being able to go, okay, that location is dangerous, you shut that down, but everything else is fine, mm-hmm. you have to pull all the levers at once. And I kind of get a sense on it with this, with the collapse of some of the testing regimes, with contact testing not really working, you can't really tell what the areas you need to focus on are. Now, I mean, we do have releases of where outbreaks are happening, but that doesn't really seem to have played into their decisions as to what to remain open and what will close. So I can, I think they don't have the data to basically do a targeted version of this and instead have just gone, it needs to be stopped. We can't tell exactly where it's coming from. Therefore, we just need to shut everything down. Which, to think about, Michael, is... A massive failure on the part of the Irish state. Let's look at just testing, right? Now, I don't know if it's true. I, I, part of me a little bit sceptical, but we're, one of the, 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 the themes of the discussion over the last months from the WHO and lots of other countries where they've been more successful is that a very solid, rigorous and rapid Testing and contact tracing scheme is uh, essential to a good to to good outcomes. That's certainly the WHO is saying. This is what you have to work at. You have to work at making sure that quarantine is respected where quarantine is required. That you have a, you have a robust testing and tracing system. Now, our testing and tracing system, which we again when we had the lockdown before, this was supposed to be the opportunity to build it up. It doesn't seem to be in the words that we like to use, fit for purpose. Um, we we have known that there are issues around, I always get it wrong, is it PCR? PRC, PRC testing? What's the, what's the test that we call, uh, the, that we use at the moment called? PCR testing, is it? Uh, I believe it is, yeah. Anyway, now, just as a thing, We've heard that uh, there, one of the issues around PCR is that you have a 75% uh, false negative. I, I, was, I mentioned this to um, uh, Professor Cullen, who's a, he's a molecular uh, scientist, molecular biologist. He's a medical doctor, but he worked in post 
graduate uh, training, postdoctoral trainees in molecular biology. He runs a large lab in Germany. He's been in Germany for a long time, and he's, he's his lab is running. I think he said five thousand tests a day about this. And he said, if you look, it's the problem isn't actually in the testing, but rather in the administration of the test. That it, it would that actually it's an exquisitely, if not. And that we said, in fact, we know this. The problem is that it's exquisitely sensitive. It's rather the problem with the negative is, is what they call a pre-analytic problem. In other words, the problem is that some, the person taking the swab doesn't get the swab right when they put the swab up the back of the nose. That they're not, it's not getting up far enough, or not getting enough stuff on it, or whatever it is. But the problem is, uh, it's a testing. He said there was an example that in uh, Northern Westphalia where they had four, five airports were using testing on people coming in, and in four cases there were med medical medical personnel were uh, staffing, uh, and in one case there were lay people. And in the four hospital, for the four cases where the, the testing was being done by professionals, people coming in from Turkey, which was regarded as a hotspot, all returned a 4% positive rate. Uh, but there was a much lower positive rate from the fifth, which was indicative that was you have a problem with the testing. But we know there is a problem with the, 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 NCPR, the PCR in that it will tell you if there is a fragment of the RNA in the bloodstream. It won't tell you if this is a person who had this months ago. It won't tell you if this person, so the person had it and has recovered from it. If you won't tell you if the person has it now, but hasn't got a sufficient viral load to actually for the virus to be act, to be active, or if the if if it has gone beyond that, if the person is in is contagious. It doesn't tell you that. Now, so it but it has its its uses obviously, particularly for people who are symptomatic or with close contacts. It's useful for that. Now, the other testing is the antigen testing, which is much easier and much quicker, but perhaps less active, but will tell you if a person is active. I think I, I heard there the other day or earlier today that we have uh, announced that we will be putting together a committee to look at whether or not we could approve rapid testing kits by the end of the year. By the end of the but year, now, Gary. To put this in perspective, in France, for instance, you can just go into a pharmacy and you can get a blood test. Yeah. And uh, I think they're about five to ten euro. A now, blood test? No, sorry, is that the, the blood, a blood test or a, or a spit test? So that, that's a blood test. Now, you can also just buy antigen test kits. So no, the, the PCR it, test, that's... I think they said that was 150 to 200 euro per test. But the blood test, Professor Cullen said, in Germany you can go in to your doctor on a Monday morning and you will be advised, in most cases, you'll be you'll get a text the following morning, Tuesday morning, you'll get a text on your phone with the result. Yeah, I mean, the French have released a, a list of about 20 different tests you can take. And some are slow, some are rapid. And you can just get them. You can just... Get them. We are spending, what, if they're 200 quid, that is 40 times more per test. It's slower. Other countries have done the research on this. They've released approved lists, which we could simply look at. And instead of doing that, we're going to have a committee to look at it because we love a fucking committee. It's I mean, God, I thought what the point of Europe is that there was that we have mutual mutual recognition of 
this kind of science like this. This is unfair to Michal Martin. And, you know, it's bad when I'm going to open by pointing that out. Yeah. Because a lot of the fault with this came from the previous government. Yes. Martin is getting the blame, but he is taking the consequences of actions that were chosen before. Not all of them. But Michal Martin is perhaps not the person we wanted as Taoiseach during a period which required rapid decision-making rather than a three-stage series of reports. Let's sit down and talk about this, lads, and we'll put on the tea. So I think I, I think I heard that um, there are schools that are just offering teachers these tests. Yes. So small private organisations have managed to roll this out, but the Irish state can't. No. <sighs> Okay, it's none of these things are are, are, are perfect, and I I, I I put it to the professor; he didn't seem to be happy with it. That one of the problems sometimes in the situations is we've talked about this before is that when you talk to doctors, they want a very very high level of certainty with double blinds and extra you know before anything can be done. Uh, otherwise, no, no, we can't do that. So I said, well, what about this? If you have these spit tests, right, and they cost between five and ten dollars. A goal, and on that basis, a private person could get could, for the sake of the, at this time, certainly I think people people be happy to get maybe test themselves three or three or four times a week. And I asked, well, that would make it more accurate, so we'll say. And he said, oh well, there, it, it wouldn't really because it only gives you a snapshot in time. I mean, you could take the test and then walk out and stick it, but that's true of any test. Assuming that you mind yourself and you haven't infected yourself over the period of three or four days or be in contact on that basis, and that will be true of most people because most people will not be infected. That if you take it, it will be it will be it will give you a pretty accurate result, and it will give it to you quickly. And once you have it quickly, then you can go and do your contact tracing. What's the point in doing contact contact tracing? Fourteen days out when i mean which is the effective way we can we can discuss what test is cheaper and what test would work better and there are obvious improvements there that don't need a committee in place because this has been done by other countries who move more quickly and more efficiently in these directions but the end result is that the system is fucked and are we likely to get it fixed before christmas because it certainly doesn't sound like it the irish health service is a mess. It's been a mess for decades. I mean, we often refer to Simon Harris as the worst health minister this country ever had, as did Verona Murphy uh, when she put the boot into him, (laughs) funnily, before the last election. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. But for years, Irish people haven't voted on the health service because we seem to have gotten to a point where we just went, it has to be this bad. And simple improvements, I know we've talked about things like the fact there's no common systems between them, Michael, the fact that a hospital can't see if a hospital down the road has a space they could get a patient in instead of waiting six months for an operation. And six months, depending on the operation, might be a very optimistic timeline. Mm, yeah, yeah. The system is in shit. And it's going to remain in shit because no one votes on it. But there are votes to be lost in fixing it. Because to fix it, you would have to do things that no one from the top to the bottom of a hospital is going to be happy with. I mean, if you move the nurses' union, it's very common for nurses to work a three-day week, now 12 air shifts, and then they have a massively long weekend because mm-hmm. that suits them. But 
that appears, to my understanding, to be terrible for patients. But it's something that's popular, and that would have to end. Yeah, you talked lots about, of votes to be lost. You're so. talking about in, in, informational, like in, interconnectivity. I was looking at the German example again because that's what was kind of in the news last week. The level of interconnectivity with regarding availability of hospital beds, availability of procedures, etc., throughout Germany, in comparison to here, in a much bigger country, but also a country which is actually a federal country, which we are not. And which has its own lo- to a, to a degree its own local health services. And by the way, that was part of the story in Germany. There was a certain, there was a federal government's reaction, but then there was the local the the, the reaction of the local lands as well. So they had different. Berlin t- took action on nightclubs, for example, uh, discotheques and stuff, uh, at an earlier and a more severe level than maybe they did in uh, in Bad Württemberg or, or Bavaria. I don't know, but certainly there was a certain there was a degree of flexibility in, in at the local level. But this and I check this out that the the dollar spend, the euro spend, between comparing Germany and Ireland, because we were constantly told it's because of massive continual years and years of underinvestment in health. It's just not true. Germans spend pretty well the same amount of money as we do on their health system, and they have a health system which works. This is the thing. For all people complain about the health service, and this, I think, is the measure of how totally disinterested people are in it, the simple changes that could have been implemented, a series of simple changes in various areas that would have massively improved patient outcome, were never done because no one gives a shit about it. For all that we talk about it, so gone Superman because you know that hasn't gone well in the past. But one thing, if you read about their politics, that comes across for is Germans don't accept. They just don't. German voters do not. They pay attention for a start, to a greater degree, I suspect, than ours do. But they don't accept bad management. They don't accept. They don't assume that that's just the nature of life. If you. The number of people, Gary, who, when you talk about the, the children's hospitals, yeah, well, you know, these things happen. You big project, you get run over. It's, it's, if you did that in Germany, if you started off and said, this is going to cost 900 million, or seven, in fact, 650 million, whatever, and it ended up costing two and a half billion, Germans would not be saying, ah, well, sure, it happens. Germans would be looking around, so... Where should we put the spikes? I think we should put the spikes over there. We'll put some heads here and some heads over there. And that will encourage them the next time to make sure the bloody hospitals built to cost. You could even get the Bavarians angry. Oh, you get the Bavarians very angry quickly if you started spending their tax. Bavarians, by the way, angry Bavarians are fantastic. Because it doesn't matter how angry they are. If they're speaking in English, their accent is fantastic when they're angry. Anyway, my point, yeah, our more general point, I suspect, is that we have made shit out of our our health system because we just, we don't, we we, we give out about it, we give out about it, but at the end we seem to say, ah, well, sure, what can you do? And I, 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 I don't, is it because we're beside Britain and we look to the NHS and, you know, if it's not that much worse than the NHS, then it must be pretty good because the the English are in love with the NHS? No, it's just because yeah, in democracy, in the long term, you get the country you deserve, and we have gotten the country we as a people deserve. We deserve um, a beating, is what we deserve. I mean that too, um, but then again, that's the thing. Given the state of the hospitals, given the state of everything, what is the best move here? Because 
we can talk about acceptable levels of death, but acceptable levels of death caused due to the virus while being treated in hospital versus acceptable levels of death while the hospitals are totally overwhelmed and people aren't receiving yes, treatment that, yes, are yes, two yes. very different end they states are, here. They are very different. They are very um, different. But just to, to close on, Michael, we talked previously about that there are other costs of lockdown to, and particularly when we talk so much about business and the economy, people forget that there are people involved in that. A fall in income has a massively negative impact on health, life expectancy, on everything, on mental health. And closures of business as well as have massive impacts on the community around them. So if we start seeing rural businesses close, they could devastate rural communities. You could see massive increases in drug use, in juvenile delinquency, falls in that sort of thing. But we'd also talked about costs such as people not going to um, cancer appointments, things like that. Something we now know is actually quite common in Ireland. But there was news out of um, Australia, uh, out of Adelaide uh, today. I don't know if you saw it actually, Michael. No. Um, So this was on Nine News Australia. And they posted a story that said that there had been four newborns born in Adelaide who required um, heart surgery. And that heart surgery wasn't available in Adelaide. Due to the the restrictions on travel they do, have due to COVID-19, those children couldn't be transferred to a different hospital. And all four, now these were newborns, subsequently died. My God. So, yeah. The restrict, they... Because the restrictions, they wouldn't move them to hospitals. So that, that's, that's I'll, I'll put a, a link to this report in the bottom, uh, either the written or the video they have on Twitter. But what they are now reporting, and this is Nine News Australia, it's a major uh, American news or Australian uh, news media, are saying that, yeah, four newborns have died after being denied life-saving heart surgery because it wasn't available in Adelaide. And they couldn't be transferred interstate because of travel restrictions. I have from Australia is a funny one. Uh, Another federalized state as well. Yeah, and there seem to be massive differences federally between the levels of restriction and lockdown from one state to other. That I have seen reports that, that some of the some of the states have been absolutely paramilitary in their application of lockdowns, and others far more relaxed. That's on the face of it, Gary, that sounds horrific. Uh, of course. I, I, I mean, maybe it'll come into it and the news has reported it incorrectly or there's more to it. But uh, as it is, and they're not stating this as an allegation, they're just, this is what yeah. happened. God. So, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, oh, the, 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 we have absolute, I think, irrespective of what we end up deciding, we end up deciding might be the best... Uh, best option to take I think the costs the layered costs of doing what we're doing are going to be absolutely savage well I mean the thing I think to mention in that case assuming that turns out as people as the news is saying it is what you could have seen happen is a general prohibition on that transport it was realized that the children could not be treated in Adelaide then they had to go apply for an exception and it was actually, maybe they would have gotten that exception, but the bureaucratic delay actually caused the deaths. 
So, I mean, we could have a situation like that where we go, well, we've limited these things, but in certain circumstances we'll allow them and we don't kind of look at, okay, but well, what will the delay in allowing them cause? Now, that may have not been applicable here, but I assume if you go to a state government and go, oh, by the way, these newborns will die if we can't bring them across state lines, they'll probably work on filling out a form for you or something. Yeah, you would have thought that they might even skip the form filling and just say, yes, for fuck's sake, go. Well, I assume because they died that they didn't skip the form filling. That's horrific. Anyway, um, let's just hope and pray that we don't see... Well, who knows? What we have seen already, we don't know what has happened in this country regarding, as you say, if we were talking about cancer, we're talking about uh, early diagnosis, access to consultants, access to early testing, all the things that we know are absolutely crucial and central to positive outcomes in treatment in cancer, not just in cancer, but in lots of, lots of uh, diseases. Michael, I think this is the second podcast in a row in which you have failed to be the uh, lighter side of things. Have I? Where I is don't... my comic relief? Um, it's just doom. Well, it, 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 it is feeling a little bit doomy and gloomy at the moment. I mean, we're like two steps away from being George Lee. <laughs> oh, God, no. No. I don't want to be. Uh, God, he's depressing. He seems to take enjoyment in it as well. Oh, it's lugubrious. It's lugubrious. The, I, the difference is, I suspect, that George is actually... He's a cheerleader for the apocalypse. Do you know, every time I, I see him talk about COVID-19, all I can think is that he would be a fantastic narrator for a snuff film. <laughs> I, I, I'm sad to say that my, my, my reaction to most of the time watching George is that I think he would be a better, not as a, a narrator, but as a protagonist. Ah, you've got to, you can't say these things about George Lee. I mean, look at him. He managed to get into politics and then realised that everyone was very mean. Horrible to them. And Horrible. didn't listen to George Lee, despite the fact he was George Lee. Almost like they wanted him to like prove himself or something. George, George is actually, now that I think of it, George is actually Cassandra, isn't he? George's job is to stand there and tell us about all these terrible, terrible, awful things. But in the past, it was that they, we didn't believe him when it was uh, back in the old days. Now, all we, we now we bow down and just... It doesn't matter, however bad it gets, with more, George, more, whip us, whip us, more. I think there's, I'd say there's half the country that would, if if we could invent a level six, they'd go to it tomorrow. I mean, we could have polling done if we wanted. <laughs> I'm just, just waiting for the sight of when I open my door and look up the seats, see a bunch of people welding somebody into their house, like the Chinese did. You're not to come out now. I'm waiting for the firing squads. Which is sort of an evergreen statement for my life. Well, yes, I'm waiting. As I used to say to me, our colleague Paddy Manning, I said, you know, every night I'm like Metternich going to bed, waiting to hear the sound of the helicopters coming for me. Not that helicopters for Metternich, but Metternich, it was the tramp, tramp, tramp of the mob on the street as the, as the Austro-Hungarian Empire dissolved in front of him. That was his nightmare every night. Oh, there is actually one, one little... Um piece of news I think that uh, you might like, Michael. And it is, I'm going to preface this by saying it's very petty. Very petty indeed. So I suspect there might be a reason why Amy Coney Barrett is being confirmed on Monday. Uh, Why Mitch McConnell picked that particular day. Why is that? It's Hillary Clinton's birthday. 
<laughs> oh god well you see you know what cocaine mitch <laughs> there's the difference there's the difference between one place and another as hillary for her birthday present is given a new supreme court justice at least in russia on the other hand when it was putin's birthday they gave him a dead journalist i'm usually happy with socks to be honest actually i wouldn't mind some socks I, my socks seem to have disappeared so if there's anybody out there sort of in the sock business and wants to do us a favor something in argyle would be nice no i'm i'm looking forward to the confused message from grip take hq going why do we have a package of socks here Kashmir would be best, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to push on that. We will see you all on Friday. Bye-bye. All the best.